0: This is a Socialist News and Views special interview.
1: I'm Nick Schillingford coming to you from the Urban Cabin Studios in South Minneapolis with this special interview. So on Socialist News and Views, we let folks introduce themselves. Do you want to just tell listeners a little bit about yourself?
0: Sure. Uh, my name is Alexis Ziegler. Um, I am a founder of Living Energy Farm, which is an off-grid community in Louisa, Virginia. I published Integrated Activism um, back in, I believe, 2013 uh, It that Book is the product of many, many years of work um, in trying to understand how the world works, make it a better place. Uh, Living Energy Farm is a more hands-on sort of project to uh, find ways to live uh, in energy, self-sufficiency, food self-sufficiency. The combining thread here is self-determination. I'm a firm believer that um, we have the right and we should be trying to determine our own lives individually and collectively. So that's what my life's work is about. Um, That's brief introduction.
1: Well, I really appreciate that. Um, Yeah. So like you said, you uh, published uh, Integrated Activism 10 years ago, 2013. Um, But I didn't get my hands on a copy until I was at uh, Twin Oaks Communities Conference in Virginia, uh, September 2022. Um, And I didn't, uh, unfortunately, didn't actually finish reading it until recently, and the top comment for the book on Amazon says uh, uh, Alexis Ziegler's uh, succeeds perhaps more than any social theorist since Marx in harmonizing data from far flung areas of study to create a unified view of how our species operates, end quote. Uh, the full title of the book is Integrated Activism, Applying the Hidden Connections Between Ecology, Economics, Politics, and Social Progress. Um, you said a lot went into this. Can you just talk about... Um, why you thought it was important to write this book and, um, you know, talk about those main themes that you constructed uh, kind of thesis of the book.
0: Yes. Well, I started at a very early age. I never went to college and I started at a very early age trying to understand um, why we're in such a mess. It's pretty obvious from, you know, the evolution of our environmental crisis, the polarization of the economy and of course, it's not getting better. It's getting worse. Right. So I wanted to understand it. I mean, as a child, my original impetus was I thought I, I wanted to be a, a social scientist in the true sense of that word. And since then, I've realized, of course, that you know politics has very little to do with truth. And, you know, that's obvious at some level. But still, I think I was raised on the myth of the, the silent spring, the idea of, you know, Rachel Carson wrote that book many years ago the idea that we could come up with an insight and uh, tell people this new insight and things would change in a positive way. Unfortunately, it's a lot more complicated than that. But in any case, you know, I really wanted to understand the deepest root of why we as individuals, we can be intelligent or I mean, you or I can, you know, plan for our future, think about our kids, think about our family, think about our lives. And yet collectively, we are incredibly foolish, stupid. It's just amazing when you look at all the big nation states, humanity as a whole, certainly the the most powerful nation states, they're just bizarrely crazy how how foolish they are, how stupid. Anyway, so I wanted to understand that. So I spent many, many years reading, researching, thinking about a wide variety of topics Uh, in history, anthropology. I dug into the sciences, social sciences on my own, really over the course of my whole life up until that point, just trying to understand how it all worked.
1: Yeah. So I remember I was actually, I was actually reaching over to uh, grab the book. Um, I I was going to say, can you talk a little bit uh, maybe about the, this kind of uh, short arc, I think, and, and, and long arc um, uh, uh, you know, how we, how we kind of visualize things in this uh, short term capacity, but really we need to be looking at this uh, longer term uh, view of history. Can you talk about that just a little bit?
0: Sure. Well, the basis of all of this uh, for me, is a lot of anthropology. And so I spent many, many years uh, studying. I was heavily influenced by the materialist. and you know, Marx is identified as a dialectical materialist. But you know, the point there is to understand, you know how human cultures evolve, how political systems evolve. and what you see, it, it's really more transparent when you look at other societies, smaller cultures. you can see kind of the story they tell themselves and then the real choices they have to make that contradict their story or don't fit within their story. You know, and it's the, the whole question of indigenous cultures gets fairly complicated, but there's certainly some indigenous cultures that did live more sustainably than we did. Mm-hmm. We do. And they, you know, stayed in the place same place for a long time. And they had enough time to sort of get a sense of that long arc of, of you know, they had to solve those long-term questions. But when you look at that evolution of human culture, that question it's really clear that we are basically rational actors, but the rationality of, of how we act is not always congruent with the story we tell. So the ecology that in which we live sets the stage for the kind of economy we develop and that economy over time has a dominating influence on how we think basically. So if you understand that, we could choose our long-term future by choosing our long-term economy from the ground up. But the the wealthier classes and the educated classes don't really want us to think that way. They want us to think that they are important. So every preacher, every politician that stands up and talks says, you know, I'm important, my ideas are important, listen to me, listen to me. So, you know, you listen to the evening news and you get all these famous people, most of the books you pick up It's all about the idea that our ideas determine our future. It seems kind of obvious. And yet in the bigger picture, it's really not that way. What's true is that what working class people do, what we all do every day with our hands, what we do to grow food, what we do to make machines, what we do to create energy and pump water, how that plays out in an economic sense selects for or has a strong influence on how our political systems evolve over time. And understanding that over time component is really critical, but it's precisely what doesn't fit in in the short term, what doesn't you know mesh with our current story. So you know the idea again goes back to self determination. That if if the understanding of human cultural and human cultural evolution was widely accepted, widely understood, then we could unravel this terrible mess. We could. We could, add, we could be intelligent in large groups instead of crazy as we currently are. So that's the idea is, is the base of it is self-determination and the means is a widespread understanding of, of human cultural evolution, which is a far cry from most of the discussion that happens even in academia uh, and certainly in the popular popular media, popular culture.
1: Yeah, and I, um, I want to get into some of the... Um uh, the actual concrete steps that you've taken, um, in, in, in your, um, uh, area to put some of this stuff into practice. I I just wanted to read, uh, I guess it's what, like two paragraphs in a sentence, uh, just from the book, uh, integrated activism in chapter 11, uh, which kind of gets to what you're talking about here. And I think really spoke to me, um, as far as how this, you know, how I visualize this says political changes move on a short curve. You say a short curve, not a, a short arc. On a short curve, the pendulum swinging one way and then another in relatively short spans of time. Ecological changes move on a long curve with large, powerful changes occurring over great spans of time. One of the primary purposes of this book has been to show that there is an intimate, if often invisible, relationship between the short curve and the long curve. The short curve of change compels our attention. The long curve moves like a silent, mighty wave under the surface. For at least the last century, the long curve has been moving in the same direction as the short curve of politics. To say that differently, the expansion of the fossil fuel industrial economy has supported the expansion of the number of people who participate in democratic processes. Economic growth has supported the expansion of civil liberty. This has reinforced our tendency to look at the short curve as being independent of the long curve. By all appearances, victory comes from winning the political argument. We are focused on the short curve, but the long curve absolutely trumps the short curve over time, and the long curve is turning. And so this is, you know, talking about our, uh, you know, our completely unsustainable uh, economy as we, uh, uh, as we see in our uh, uh, industrial age, and how, you know, that is, uh, although we we don't like to talk about it, <laughs> which is part of, you know, that is shaping our political uh, possibilities. Let's say, um, and restricting those uh, political possibilities as we. Uh, as we move forward. And so, you know, last year, I also picked up uh, another book of yours, uh, which I haven't uh, read cover to cover yet. Um, The uh, Community's Guide, A Practical Guide to Energy Self-Sufficiency and Stopping uh, Climate Change. Um, I'll admit, I I haven't actually read the whole thing. I am going to actually read it cover to cover, but I did get a chance to go to Living Energy Farms when I was down there and see a number of your inventions uh, the DC microgrid, uh, your biogas system, uh, that used, um, you know, composted material. And I also saw, uh, an earlier version of your simple harvester. Uh, now recently you were able to demonstrate that simple grain harvester. Uh, and I believe it was that the Louisa historical society, uh, in Louisa, Virginia, that was October 13th of 2023. Um, can you talk about the harvester, you know, why that's such an important invention for small farmers, um, uh, how your demonstration went and just, uh, in general, your uh, uh, your kind of ethos around these, uh, these inventions that you've been working on.
0: Sure. Um, if I may just correct one little thing there, you use the phrase communities guide. I, uh, if you Google search or whatever search on that term, you'll probably go to a book published by the Fellowship of Intentional Communities, which is a great book. It's a database that tells you about intentional communities all over the country. The empowering time- Communities. Sorry. Empowering Communities, yep. yeah, just so we get that clear. Yeah.
1: Empowering Communities, a Practical Guide to Energy Self-Sufficiency and Stopping Climate Change. Thank you.
0: Right. Sure. And that book, by the way, is available as a free download, a free PDF. If you go to the livingenergyfarm.org website or my personal website, uh, C-O-N-E-V, conev.org, either way, it'll get you to that book. Great. So yeah, that, you know, I spent many years sort of getting up in front of crowds of people and saying, You know, we cannot hold on to democracy without localizing the economy, without, you know, bringing economic power back to working class people, back to, you know, communities. And, you know, that had whatever impact it had. But at some point it's like, well, I don't feel like this is what I want to do. I want to actually work on the material side of this. So we built Living Energy Farm. The D.C. microgrid has worked out great, far exceeded my expectations. It's really a whole new way to use solar energy with, uh, and that's much cheaper, much more sustainable. You know, there's no, people want to think of one energy source as being good or bad. Solar panels are not good and they are not bad. Right. But what is clear is that if we can live with a lighter footprint and, you know, live reasonably well, that's good. And this is at least 80% lighter footprint. In any case, so yeah, so there's other devices involved. Some are more important than others. I, I feel like for me personally, that harvester is, the single most important thing I've done with my life at a material level. The uh, the reality is that growing, we all live on grain in one way or another. Um, and now, you know, there's a lot of land in the world that is not farmed because the farmers cannot grow grain profitably. Of course, there's a whole other issue with, as Gandhi would say, the cattle of the rich eat the bread of the poor. But Mm -hmm. we're not going to go down that road at the moment so much. But the point here is that, uh, that the most expensive part of growing grain is the harvesting. You can harvest it by hand with a sickle, and that's very slow. And any combine currently on the market is very expensive and very complicated. So I started about eight years ago at this point digging into the U.S. Patent Office database and trying to, figure out a much simpler design and we have now a much much simpler design the actual release of that was a bit of a flop in terms of publicity we didn't get a lot of publicity for better or worse but we're now the university of missouri is now helping us a bit they're putting in a little bit of funding which is good and they have a project in conjunction with another organization uh, to try to do uh threshers in rural africa which is great for us so we've actually set up a small, a contract with them It's you know, not, not much in terms of money, but just to get the technology to them. And right now I'm working six days a week as a welder, basically putting together the next iteration of this machine. So it's, it's something that could be mass manufactured. The cheapest Chinese combine currently on the market is probably $10,000 if you wanted to take it to Jamaica or Puerto Rico, those two countries that where, we, where I've seen firsthand, we're trying to two areas trying to take the DC microgrid and, you know, there's plenty of land sitting there and, you know, Jamaica's about 70, 75% of their food is imported. Puerto Rico, it's like 85%. Mm. It's not because you can't grow grain. Of course, people can eat many things other, other than grain, but they can't afford, farmers can't afford to harvest it and make a profit. Mm. So I don't think that machine is a magic bullet, but it's something I'm happy with. It's a much, much simpler machine. Um, so, and it hopefully is going to benefit us we actually put a, a global patent on it, which is a bit of a morally complex question, uh, it really comes down to trying to raise money for uh, to uh, help expand the DC microgrid, because I don't think that's gonna expand without more funding. So we're trying to set it up so small farmers can get access to the machine, but if there's any bigger concerns that end up manufacturing that thing, we get enough of a cut from it to fund some more of the solar energy work. At least for now, that's the plan.
1: Yeah, well, I really appreciate that. Yeah, I uh, I think that uh, all these things you're working on can play uh, an important role. And again, yeah, promotion is always the um, <laughs> the difficult uh, the difficult piece. The people that already have the um, technologies that we use have a huge budget to promote those technologies a lot of times too, and they have the backing of you know all the powers that be and all the systems uh, that already exist. Um, you know, so moving forward as far as other um, Projects? Are you going to be mostly focused on uh, work promoting the harvester and the and the DC microgrid, or are you? Are there other um, kind of, I guess, inventions or ideas that you have in your mind that you want to start working on uh, putting together? Are there other things you want to write? Uh, what's What's on the uh, agenda for you coming up?
0: Well, that'll depend some on what opportunities arise. Certainly. Uh, my wife, Debbie, we've got a great partnership. She is mostly organizing the work around the DC microgrid that is primarily focused on Puerto Rico and Jamaica right now. Um, we have an idea to try to do this technology in the US. At this point, I have built a number of small community structures, you know, cooperative houses that have anywhere from eight to a dozen people in them. And we built these houses for anywhere between 14 and Sixteen thousand dollars per capita, and um, you know some of this work preceded Living Energy Farm. Living Energy Farm is fully off grid. Some a couple of the other houses are on grid, but we're trying to take them off grid. So, you know, another evolution that we might go with, uh, if we can pull together enough support, is what we're calling uh, off grid condos. Condos is kind of a funny word, but the idea. So you mentioned Twin Oaks and the communities gathering. Mm-hmm. My wife and I both have a lot of history there. And that model is is fine for what it is, but that level of sharing is really challenging for Americans. And it's also a question around being working class and can you live in an income-sharing community and have to walk away from it with nothing. So we're looking at an economic model and a housing model that could provide inexpensive housing that is also off-grid. Using the DC microgrid, maybe the biogas, that's a little more difficult, but pulling Mm -hmm. some of these technologies together... Because as you know, every pretty much every city in the country now has a housing crisis. Right. Americans, what, the bizarre thing is that middle class Americans are now occupying four times as much square footage per capita as they did in World War Two. Mm. So even though our buildings are more efficient and our industrial systems get more efficient, we use up so much more stuff. We erase the efficiency. Right. So, again, it's not a magic bullet, but that's that's a project that if we can get the support, we'll go forward with it. The harvester, again, it'll depend on how much support we get. You know, the bottom line with that is we want to make sure that it gets into the hands of small farmers around the world. So whatever path we have to take, uh, we'll take that path. So, yeah, uh, expansion of the DC microgrid, expansion of the... um, of accessibility to the harvester, the development of low-income, off-grid housing in this culture, I and, you know, in the U.S., that is, uh-huh. you know, and for me personally, you know, I've been doing this a while. I'm not as young as I used to be. I would like to get out and get on the stage again. You know, it's funny. My father was a terrible racist. I won't curse on here, on your program. He sure. was not a nice person, but he was a preacher. He was a Southern uh, racist, crazy son of a gun, Uh, but he kind of taught me to be a preacher and I can get up and do that. I can get up in front of an audience and kind of maybe inspire people or talk to people in a way that, you know, I've done that before. I've done that in the past. Right. And like I said, I tried to do that before we did living energy farm, but it's tough. You know, I'm not Rachel Carson. I'm not like with one little message about one little poison that we can make go away. I'm trying to ask for a fundamental structural change. And you know, what's going to happen is industrial production is going to start declining. Whether that's a steep curve or a long, slow grinding curve, I don't know. You don't know. Nobody knows for sure. Mm -hmm. The politics are just going to get uglier as we go down that curve. It's already pretty ugly. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: So, you know, certainly the appetite for fundamental change will increase as we go down that curve. You know, it's funny with the DC microgrid. Me and my wife talk about this all the time, is that people who have A lot. They have a steady income. They have grid power. They have good food. They just don't want to change much. They don't want to be off grid. They don't want to grow their own food. They don't want self-determination. What they want is to feel better about the privilege they have. And that's the environmentalism we have, the kind of, you know, lame-ass political whatever we have going on now. And the people who are most uh, interested in basically everything we or I have to offer are people who have less privilege. So, but they have less resources as well. So how do you organize those people? You mentioned the noise. This is, I'm happy to be on your program and I hope, you know, I hope you can get attention because these little, what seem like really small media outlets these days, don't underestimate the importance of it. I mean, we have to keep the ideas alive, keep the dialogue alive. You can look at the history of it. I mean, you can go back 2000 years and, you know, there were discussions about the impact of diet on, you know, food and, and the rich eating too much meat and how that messes up our politics in the time of the Greeks. There are these dialogues with Aristotle talking about that. It's not that people don't understand this thing. It's that the people who have the power make the noise. So we need to keep these ideas alive and, uh, it's like keeping seeds alive. We grow seeds too at Living Energy Farm, incidentally. Mm-hmm. But you've got to keep the germoplasm alive. We've got to keep the non-GMO, non-hybrid seeds alive, in, that intellectually as well as, you know, in a material sense, for when the opportunity arises. I mean, people want to use that word capitalism and say everything is capitalism's fault. Well, the economy we have now is not capitalist. Uh, car, You know, Adam Smith was in favor of, of small holders, not corporatism, which is what we have now. And, you know, you have socialism in the mention of your Mm -hmm. uh, program. Yeah, socialism is great, as long as we, it is a decentralized socialism, where we have control over our communities that we can then extend to control over the government. Mm -hmm. So it all comes down to who owns the land, who owns the factories, who owns the energy, and bringing that back to a level that we can control it. And holding on to that, holding on to some flow of information, some awareness that this is more important than what all those hot air mouths, I'm <laughs> so, I mean, we'll talk no. about but the mainstream liberal media, my God, you know, they will they constantly, like, if we just win the argument, we could fix it all. It's like, no, actually, right. There's much
1: deeper issues going on here. Yep. Um, I agree. So. Yeah, I agree with you. And I, you know, this, and I, you know, I'd love to see you, uh, you know, if you wanted to uh, uh, tour around the country in some way or whatever, I'd love to have you uh, come to Minneapolis. Um, I Like I said, I think you have a lot to offer uh, to the uh, people trying to do work. Uh, some stuff they know and some stuff they don't fully uh, know. But, you know, back to integrative acti- integrated activism quick. Um, at the end, you write, uh, quote, good leadership, particularly at the local level, is welcome, but the responsibility to claim the right to build local, sustainable economies is and can only be ours. The task of a fundamental remake of our social system and its relationship to ecological systems can only be done from the bottom up, end quote, which is what you were just um, talking about there. And I know, you know, this is a huge um, question, but, um, you know, what? what recommendations do you have for... People that are out there, organizers, activists, you know, people who consider themselves environmentalists who, you know, aren't don't uh, don't own land at this point or don't, um, you know, maybe own anything. Um, You know, what what can they do in their local communities to try to put some of these ideas into practice or try to, uh, you know, more seriously take a look at the uh, uh, long term situation that humans find themselves in? Do you have any uh, recommendations on that front? Well
0: sure anything that that increases your ability to sustain yourself anything that increases your community's ability to sustain itself is a good thing anything that decreases your intellectual spiritual or physical dependency on corporate media corporate powers and mm-hmm. that big ugly system out there that's what we have to do is break that dependence you know, there's. It's funny. I don't know if you have any poor friends who, or low-income friends who use this term. Share the love. It's it's a dignified way of begging. Like you can ask mm-hmm. people for money. It's like share the love, man. Mm-hmm. And you know, I respect that. That yep. you I like that terminology. I find it charming. But the reality is that every day we share all the love with the people, the corporations that feed us, and we, and we share the love with the corporations that supply us energy. And then, you know, a lot of it, we are not in the near term going to be praised. We're not going to be famous. Our movements are not going to gain a huge amount of success if we're working on these long-term issues. I'm not going to tell anyone to not protest or to not focus on a short-term issue. I've done a lot of protests. I've been arrested some and tear gassed, whatever. I've done some of that. It has its place. I think there's a benefit to that. I would never tell anybody to not do that. But, you know, there's seven days in a week. If you're protesting <laughs> one day a week, it's like going to church. What are you doing the other six days a week?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: We need to be building the next economy. What I t- When I used to stand up in front of people and speak, I'd say, okay, just th- just imagine in your mind an optimistic scenario of the future 200 years from now. You know, we either have no fossil fuel or maybe a tiny little bit. We've we've localized because we had to, you know, we've, we've managed to somehow escape the boot of the d- dictators and we have so you know we managed it. Okay, now just imagine that that's true today. Right. Just imagine that, and just just start doing it that way. Um, and you know I think the the most pernicious aspect of this corporate economy is that we constantly look up. You know it's funny when you read anthropology, and because I, I grew up in it, like I said a kind of messed up Christian family, and you know we, we were always afraid of God in the sky and the devil and all this stuff. And you mm. start reading anthropology and realize that that. Most of humanity through most of history, you know, there was no omnipresent God, that there were spirits that lived in the bushes and they mm. would wrestle with the spirits. When the, when someone became ill, the shaman would wrestle with the spirits to try to make them better and often succeeded, by the way.
1: Mm.
0: But we've been trained to always look up, always look up. You know, even the most, our most radical leaders, we, we, we always want to look up for the famous person to tell us what to do. Mm. And when we do something, we think somebody, somebody famous should praise us. It's like, no, the most important things you're going to do in your life, you're not going to get praised for it. You're not going to be famous. That's fine. That's not, doesn't matter. We have to to bring that spiritual sense back down to the forest around us to understand that that, you know, again, the indigenous question is really complicated. People use that word in a lot of funny ways. But understanding that the spirits do live in the trees that we do, mm. that heaven is here on earth right now that we can reclaim it mm. each and every day, share the love. Imagine that there's no more, no more movie stars, no more, no more famous anybody. <laughs> and all that energy, all the, all the money we would have spent buying, uh, you know, our famous uh, music from this rock and roll stars and seeing the famous uh, movie stars. Mm. What if all that money and all that attention went into local culture and local media what if we, instead of believing what we were told in academia, that we seek out the truth? Mm. You know, at the end of Integrated Activism, there's sort of my short list of here's the books that are that I think are important. And some of those books are really obscure. obscure. Right. You know, just to mention one, Poverty and Progress, that's probably the most important book ever written by a guy named Richard Wilkinson, wrote it back in the 1970s. If you read that book, it completely revises what you understand about how technology evolves and, you know, I communicated with him. He might be dead by now. I'm not sure. But, mm. you know, he was never famous. You know, he he had his little career. He did his thing. But that's an enormously important book. Right. Um, so, you know, the work is in our hands every day. And Yeah,
1: I, I agree with you. You know, there's a this local culture, you know, like you said, replacing this, uh, you know, oftentimes vapid mass culture is like, you know, that would be heaven on earth. I would love to see that. Uh that happened. Um, I, in, in speaking about, um, you know, self-determination and local, uh, struggles just last night, I was, um, there's a, there's an encampment of unhoused folks here in Minneapolis, um, near, uh, a large, uh, uh, indigenous community and a lot of the people in the uh, encampment are indigenous folks. Um, and the city, you know, continues to come in and clear these encampments without any plan for, you know, what's going to happen with these individuals. Um, so, you know, there's like 150 approximately people living there in their own, like, you know, shelters that they've constructed with their own, you know, systems and with support from, um, you know, mutual aid, uh, groups or different people in the community here. So last night there was a March just to show, uh, some solidarity with those, uh, folks and, um, you know, continue to call on the, um, uh, city not to not to step in and try to you know wrestle this little bit of self-determination that people have away from them um you know so that's i think getting at uh you know so i think i think in some ways uh you know uh some of these communities like that uh are are, are starting to lead the way of uh you know trying to take uh take take some self-determination steps and and, and build a community outside of the uh, mainstream uh communities that we have right now
0: you know that's And those are exactly the kind of people, the smartest social scientists right now are all homeless or on the psych wards because they're the ones who are willing to actually think about things and not live inside of the crazy reality that we've created in modern industrial society. You know, there's one interesting success story. Are you familiar with Dignity Village uh, outside of Portland? I'm not, no. They and The last time I was there was probably in the late 1990s, so I can't speak. You know, organizations evolve. I don't know exactly what they're doing now, but they did have a success in uh, with a group of um, homeless people and activists who got involved and actually managed to get a piece of land given to them or or leased or something from the city that they then built a, a community out of. Um, nice. And, you know, it, it really brought home the point to me. I had, my friend of mine was a medical practitioner and we would go out there a little bit in the late 1990s and just help people who needed help. But you know, homeless people are not homeless by accident, right? You know, they are homeless because basically because capitalism, as we corporatism as we now have it, needs to maintain a certain number of poor people to keep people working. It's kind of the the mm. you know the stick. If the if money is the carrot, then poverty is the stick. You know, they want to they want to maintain a, a basically as many poor people as they can get away with politically, right? And if you just took any city, of course, now among the homeless population, there are people with mental health issues, whatever. But, you know, people can you can manage that or figure out ways. But if you just let people say, okay, here's a piece of dirt. You know, you need to pull together a structure and you may not be able able to include everybody. But a lot of people, those people could pull together and build their own communities. And I think Dignity Village, I know, used to have starter packets. But, okay, here's how we do that. And it ties back because these are the people who are gonna be open to DC microgrids, to talking about um, how to do things differently. You know, right. one random statistic here, you know, corporate food is is evil, is bad, of course, and it's making people sick on a major scale. Did you know that the number of, of, of African-American uh, vegetarians now is like twice as many per capita as white people? Because uh, if you talk to working class white people, a lot of them are just like, they still wanna climb that ladder and a lot of black people are willing to question it more because they know they've just had a longer history of like, I don't know if I can climb that ladder. They question right. things more. It's interesting. Well, and um, seeing
1: seeing the terrible, you know, the the very uh, obvious, bold face, uh, you know, evils that lurk within the system that we, that we live in. They've seen the, a lot of uh, black people in the community have seen those as well, right? They've seen how, you know, how people think it's this great system. And yet there's all these terrible elements to it that they... Uh, a lot of them face on a daily basis,
0: yeah, sure, well, yeah. I mean, I don't again, i I don't know. you know, for me, if, if for any of us, you kind of move along whatever lines you can, where you can get traction, where you can feel like it can have an effect. Exactly. And I'm proud for what we did with living energy farm. We, we that that we discovered a new way to use solar energy that's better, and I'm proud of that. um, you know, the combine's a cute little project, but certainly, you know, as going forward, Things are going to get worse, you Mm -hmm. know, whether or not what whoever's elected. And, you know, you know, the politics are getting crazier. Right. Um, It's not going to get better that the idea that everybody in the world could have an upper middle class American lifestyle is crazy. It's never going to happen, even if you wanted that. Right. The whole industrial system, you know, it's still growing, although the rate of growth is slowing and the number of people getting left out is increasing. Um, another interesting, I'm not a, a global traveler, but I've traveled enough to know that, you know, Noam Chomsky talks about this a lot, how Americans are uh, dumbed down on purpose, that our media is so uh, vapid. Um, I mean, everybody in the world, you know, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is is longstanding, and I don't pretend to have a magic solution, but what everybody outside of the United States knows is that You know, twelve hundred or so Israelis died, and eighteen thousand and counting Palestinians have died. What everybody in the United States knows, who watches the news, is the first part, not the last part. Right? You know, they just don't even talk about it. Mm -hmm. So there's huge pieces of reality of history that the average American just on a daily basis is just not just not discussed. It's not part of our story. So, I think if you look at it, if you're just trying to convince mainstream American, whether they call themselves liberal or or, uh, conservative, it's pretty discouraging. If you look at it on a global scale, the possibility of working class people getting their shit together and organizing a a truly sustainable economy that, you know, glides down rather than crashes, it's more optimistic when you look on it, you know, on the bigger scale. So that's, you know, that gives me some hope.
1: Yeah, well, hopefully we got to just like, you you know, keep discussing these things and keep bringing up these uh, blind spots, especially for the uh, American public, you know, kind of in the belly of the beast at the center of, you know, b- one of the most powerful empires on Earth at the moment, uh, if not the still the most powerful. Uh, well, I really loved uh, Integrated Activism and Empowering Communities, uh, Practical Guide uh, to Energy Self-Sufficiency and Stopping Climate Change. Um you know, and I, I think you should be really proud of everything that you've done. You've done a lot of uh, good work. And, you know, like it, like you said, yeah, it's not about getting famous or something. Um, where's the best, what would be the best way for people to get those um, books? I know you said that the one is the Empowering Communities is downloadable for free online. What about integrated activism? What's the best way to get that?
0: Uh, you, uh, <laughs> North Atlantic is the publisher who published it. Okay. You can buy it from them. Um, I do not personally ever buy anything from Amazon, but, you know, there are local books, you know, it's, uh, it's hard to keep track because what happens is Amazon has been buying out some of the local suppliers. Right. So a books wasn't independent. I think they've been bought by Amazon. I think Mm. thrift books is still independent. Um, so it's like 20 bucks, I think, if you get it from North Atlantic. If you go to Thrift Books, you can probably get it cheaper. If somebody out there can tell me whether or not Thrift Books has been bought out, it's hard to keep track who buys who out.
1: Yeah, right.
0: Um, so, well, yeah, those that was published under a publisher, so I can't give it away for free. Um,
1: very fair. Well, I really appreciate your time. You know, there's only a couple minutes left because I don't have a license for uh, Zoom. Uh, is there anything else you want to say? Uh, I feel like we covered most of it.
0: Well, there's always more to say, but thank you for your program, Uh, uh, livingenergyfarm.org, livingenergylights.com is our outreach program for spreading the DC microgrid, Conev.org, C-O-N-E-V.org is my personal website. Um, We, uh, like you said, got
1: to keep the discussion going. Yeah, take care. Have a good day. And, uh, you know, feel free to reach out anytime if there's anything I can do up here in Minnesota. Sounds good. We'll be in touch. (laughs) Yep, bye. And that's our special thanks for listening. Solidarity.
0: This has been a Socialist News and Views special interview.